0: Welcome to the
1: Broadway Gives Back podcast. I'm your host, Jan Svensson. This podcast spotlights Broadway actors, shows, and organizations in their pursuit of social impact and philanthropy. Join us as some of the brightest lights on Broadway share their stories about their favorite charities and how they got involved, and the people and the causes who benefited from these philanthropic efforts. My guest this week, Heather Hitchens, is the president and CEO of the American Theater Wing. As CEO, she is charged with co-presenting and maintaining the Wing's brand of excellence in the Tony Awards. In addition, Heather is overseeing and shaping the Wing's other vital grant-making, professional development, educational, and media programs. Founded in 1917 on the eve of America's entry into World War I by seven suffragettes, the American Theater Wing has spent a century using theater to advance the human experience. So it seemed only fitting that we highlight Heather and the theater wing during Women's History Month. Heather is also on the faculty of Baruch College's master's program, where she teaches cultural policy, and she's a trustee of the Actors Fund. I got to work closely with this incredible, smart, and caring woman over the years, so I'm especially happy to have her here today. Heather, welcome to the Broadway Gives Back Podcast.
2: Thank you, I'm delighted to be here.
1: So before we start some serious conversation, I thought we could do a little fun sort of get to know you for the, our listeners. Would you be down for that? A few questions? Sure. <laughs> okay. What are three words that describe you?
2: Patient? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not. <laughs> you know, that's hard. I Look, I think strategic, um, passionate. Um and, um, you know, enthusiastic. Well, I guess passionate and enthusiastic are the same thing, but I would say strategic, passionate and and focused. Those, those would be my words. <laughs> Where's your happy place? Well, you know, really my happy place I think is, you know, wherever my husband Felix and my chocolate lab Olivia are, you know, it's like whether that's Brooklyn, or that's upstate New York when whenever the three of us are together that's my happy place.
1: Oh, so nice. Speaking of your husband Felix, he's an amazing cook. What
2: is your favorite meal that he makes? Oh my god, it's like it's endless because he's willing to do anything, but certainly, I mean, you'll relate to this because you spend a lot of time on the West Coast and we're both West Coast, you know babies, but, you know, getting good Mexican food in New York is a real challenge. Whereas in L.A., you just anywhere you can can get salsa in the grocery store. Right. This is like, fantastic. So um, because we can't really get it, I I think I tend to right now love uh, the Mexican uh, things he makes. He'll just make salsa on a, you know, I'm just going to make salsa because I'm not going to. It's just easier to make it because we can't get it. Carnitas, carne asada. I love all of that. Um, but then, you know, um, you know, he, he makes a lot of French food as well. It just depends. So um, he does anything. But basically, whatever he's making that evening. But I do um, have a special fondness for the Mexican dishes, especially just because we can't get them here unless he cooks them.
1: <laughs> Sounds delicious. What is your most used emoji? I don't use
2: emojis, but... I, <laughs> I know I'm like the worst texter in the world, but let's just smiley face, whatever pops up, you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Heather, what do you most give a damn about?
2: I, I I give a damn about art and, you know, making art that um, supports artists and that means something, you know, um, you know, I, I believe that, um, art moves the needle. I believe that art is how we have dialogue. I believe art is how we understand ourselves. I believe art is how we feel better sometimes. And so I give a damn about that. And I really give a damn about the people that make the art. And I think through the pandemic, one of the things that was uh, made very transparent is that our most valuable people in our industry are our most vulnerable people in our industry. And that they're, you know, part of this freelance, you know, community, um, that we're, you know, we almost lost and we need to, you know, support them. And we need to like, none of us made. now you're going to get my cultural policy stump, but none of us made the speech, but you know, none of us made the industry that we have, but it was an industry that was built on institutions and based on trickle down economics to artists. And that trickle never trickled. And, you know, and I'm not just talking about the artists on the stage or, you know, um, you know, the the creative artists, all those people are important. I'm talking about the costume shops that, you know, all the sort of um, artists and artisans that get a show on stage. And I, I feel like if we don't come out of this pandemic saying we are one, you know, community and we all we need to find a way to sustain our most vulnerable, then we're going to just end up you know, in the same place. And we might lose people, you know, to other places.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, now you see why I wanted to have Heather as a guest on this podcast. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Before we go like deeper into that, and I do want to go deeper, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey from a California girl in a high school band, I think, to one of the top positions in theater in the world?
2: Sure. Well, I was a kid... um, that grew up with art and music in school from the you know earliest ages i we all took art class we all took music class and there was a school play and that was just there and it wasn't uh it wasn't an elective you just took it it was like oh you had language arts you had da, da, da and you took it nobody differentiated this whatever that was in the beginning and so usually when you were in first grade they offered you the chance to start on the violin and take the Suzuki method and then move to another instrument. And, you know, unbeknownst to everyone, they offered me the violin. And I, I said, no, I don't want to play the violin, but I would like to play the drums, which shocked everybody because I really wasn't the person I am today. I was very shy. I didn't say very much, you know, generally speaking. And, you know, there was a big conversation with my parents and, you know, thank goodness they just said, well, what's wrong with that? And you know, pretty soon that was my passion. And I studied and played and all through elementary school, junior high and high school. At one point in our house in Westlake, California, where I grew up there, we had a marimba in the living room. We had two and two timpani, and we had a drum set in the family room. And it was like, and that was just normal. My parents sort of tolerated all the practicing (laughs) and all that. I did have one of my neighbors in Southern California come flying over the fence shirtless at like 11 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday because he was hung over and I was practicing. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess I was bothering him, but in in any event, um, so that's where my passion began. And of course, as a musician, I was involved in lots of things. So I would play obviously orchestra concerts. I played in jazz ensembles. I played in the pit. A lot for opera and for theater, and um, I went on to study music. Um, I always was interested in the business side of things. My dad was a uh, in in business, and my mom was a teacher. So you know, it's kind of like do good, but I understood the business, you know, side. Um, and so I I went to DePaul University in in Greencastle, Indiana, and the percussion teacher actually flew out to L.A. to recruit me because they really needed percussionists and. So I um, went there and actually the other percussionist that they recruited for that year was also a woman. So, you mm-hmm. know, that was really interesting and we were kind of, you know, bonded. But, you know, during that time, I kind of minored in, in, in business and was just still interested in the business of things. And then I graduated and, you know, was looking for any kind of job. You know how hard it is mm-hmm. to get started. Mm-hmm. And so I found a job at a local radio station. My parents had moved to Bucks County Pennsylvania by that time from Los Angeles, and it was WBUX in Doylestown, and I was the traffic manager, which is not like shadow traffic, but is more like scheduling things and don't put the a- AMP commercial next to the Super Fresh commercial. But there was a woman there that did a culture show, and her name was Joan Stack, and her daughter Nina Stack had been head of the New Jersey Arts Council, and she was like, hey, kid, what are you doing? You know, you should go work for the American Music Theater Festival in Philadelphia. They they're hiring interns. They'll pay you more and you'll learn something. So I went and interviewed with Marjorie Samoff, who was the producing director there. And of course, American Music Theater Festival later became the Hal Prince Theater. But they did a lot of really groundbreaking work. And so I went to apply for a marketing internship and she said, you're not a marketing person. You're a development person. And here's the da, 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 da. And I said, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. Oh, raising money? No, I'm not gonna do that. No, I was like, no way. So, um, but then I watched her um, who, and she was a very artistic soul but I watched her march into corporations and be like, we're gonna do this really weird stuff, okay? And you're gonna fund it. Okay, here's a hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like you get to go say, this is what we're gonna do artistically. And people say, hey, we wanna support it. So i i learned and sort of cut my teeth there um i also learned and um developed and deepened my love and respect for artists because you know we did a lot of work developmentally for the first time and sometimes it didn't work out you know and um marjorie would say you know because people would be like whoa you know, that didn't really work out. And she goes, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, if if we gave this artist the space to develop this work and the next thing they do, then we've done our job. And it really sort of opened my eyes to how much of our business is, is focused on the production and not the development of the production and how much pressure that puts on artists when they're not given time to develop their ideas and we see that you know all the time mm-hmm. you know where it doesn't get fully developed and then it's like wow you know so um anyways so i worked for um american music theater festival and I, there was another mentor and there are these since we're in women's history month it's interesting that all these mentors are women So um, the first one being Joan Stack, then at American uh, Music Theater Festival, a lady named Betty Kaiser and Betty, she ran the group sales um, program and she had one of those typewriters, you know, with one letter off. And (laughs) she she loved music as well as theater. And I was the only person that she could talk to music about. So she would sit next to me and type and be like, yeah, and she said to me one day, you know, um, you're not going to get ahead here right <laughs> <laughs> and she said no i am not saying that in a bad way but you have to think about it like boot camp you can learn a lot from these folks but you know this is so you need to go up you're smart you need to go up and get your master's degree from my friend ed Aaron, who runs the masters in arts administration program at drexel i went up and i met with him um he was a cellist uh, originally in yeah. the philadelphia orchestra and he be- He started this program because there had been such horrible labor relations between the Philadelphia Orchestra, musicians, and management that he thought there's got to be a way for people that have the soul of an artist to become into these leadership positions so that we're not so adversarial. And he started that program. And it used to be not so anymore that you could not get into that program unless you had been a practicing artist. Um, So I got my master's degree uh, while I was working at AMTF and then went from there to the Delaware symphony originally as a de- development director, but in a twist of fate at, I don't know, what was I 24, they made me the executive director. Wow. And, um, I think I still hold the title for the youngest executive director of a symphony and then, um, you know, meet the composer, which is an organization I had always admired, um, because it's the largest commissioner of new work in the country. In all disciplines—theater, you know, theater, jazz, opera, dance, everything—and uh, was looking for sort of a number two, and I came to New York to do that, and that's how I came to New York in 1996. And long story short, I ended up <laughs> becoming president of that organization because um, the person left to go to the Mellon Foundation. And long story short, I was there for 11 years. Um, And it really also cemented my relationship with the creative artists and new work. And, um, and then was kind of like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I can't, I had a mentor say to me, um, you know, you can't stay here forever. You're going to become like the second founder. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I wasn't interested in anything. And then one day the phone rang and it was a, a friend. Well, who is now a friend, but an acquaintance at that point, who said, you know, Elliot Spitzer is looking for somebody to run the New York state council on the arts. I want to put your name in, is that okay? And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And, And, and I thought, well, I don't know where this is going, but I have always thought that there needed to be reform in how funding was given. And this seems like an opportunity to get on the side to make a difference. And so long story short, I was vetted and hired, and and um, went there, and I served my entire four-year term as an appointee. But but Mr. Uh, governor Spitzer, <laughs> he
1: needed did not. he needed to be vetted, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, but um, fortunately, uh, David Patterson, who was uh, the uh, lieutenant governor at the time had called me when he read about the appointments i was really weird i picked up my phone and he said oh this is lieutenant governor patterson i just want to say i'm thrilled with your appointment i'm thrilled it's a real person that is getting this appointment and i love arts and culture and if i can ever be helpful to you please let me know and it was like well now you're the governor so you could really be helpful to me (laughs) (laughs) um but anyway so my journey is a little bit zigs and zags you know um, performing arts writ large but really um you know i want I want to make meaningful and important things happen and each one of these things uh, these opportunities allowed me to make meaningful and important things happen and the wing has been just a delightful surprise in that uh, respect because you know I think when I came on we were at the beacon for the first time and everybody was worried about the economic model and whatever. And of course we mastered that. And then it was like, and, and, and we made a lot of progress and headway around the Tonys. But what really stole my heart was this history of the wing and the potential for the wing to be very, you know, in, do very impactful work in developing the pipeline into, uh, into theater and diversifying that pipeline. And so that's, From the beginning to today, (laughs) (laughs) well, I I love
1: the fact that you are an artist, and that in your heart there. Well, first of all, there are so few leaders and executives in the theater world that are truly artists, and so that combination has really served you well and has served our community so well. Um, So, in twenty eleven is when you started at the Wing, right? Twenty eleven, and. um, the wing has seen quite an expansion since you've been there. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, Maybe start with the Andrew Lloyd Webber initiative. Um, I happen to know that one just because I have, I was very lucky to have helped that one year with the grant application selection process. And it's an amazing program. So maybe talk about that first and we can segue into the other programs. Sure. Well,
2: yeah, I think, you know, the bottom line is we had some programs that existed that were fabulous, but just needed to be expanded. And then we had some, you know, uh, what I would call when you look at it sort of gaps or opportunities to do more. And, you know, I was really looking, I think we need to get to people earlier. I mean, we started this conversation talking about I had music, art, and the school play that is no longer a given, right? Uh, In fact, it's probably more of a given that you don't have that, unless you're privileged and you, you, your parents have demanded that in school and um, or they pay for it outside of school. And so when we look at our industry and we're saying who's sitting in the seats, who's behind the desk, who's on stage, like if we don't get to kids earlier, we're going to be in a chronic, you know, state of, um, you know, a lack of talent and diversity coming into the industry. So to me, it was like, yes, I believe in arts education, but this is just like, I also want to sustain the industry over the long haul, you know, and it's and it's like whoever gets that arts education, whether they end up on the stage or behind the scenes, or they end up as a board member or at the charity network, you want people that have this skill set in the mix. So. Figuring out how we could best do that, looking at where the opportunities were um, to make an impact, and then just you know around that time, School of Rock was on Broadway, and Andrew Lloyd Webber was very interested in arts education and came to see me and said, "I don't know, I've got this show, <laughs> School of Rock. The whole you know the whole thing is about how music education changes these kids' lives. Is is there is there something that we should do together?" And I said, well, let's think about what the right thing is. And I kind of looked at some of the stuff he was doing in the UK. And I looked at stuff that I, you know, I I have a broad overview, obviously, based on all those jobs that I had had previously. And we landed on this three-part program, which was one, Title I schools. What we found was a lot of these schools, they might have a theater thing, but they had no way to do theater. They didn't have lights, they didn't have sound. And so, you know, we, the classroom resources section of this program provides that kind of equipment, but not only the equipment, we're training young sound designers and lighting designers, not just because everybody, the only most of theater, they, it's like, you want to be an actor. Nobody Mm -hmm. knows about all these other jobs. So it was really important to us to do that. And then the second component is what I call almost like a fresh air fund for theater because it's kids sixth grade through 12th that you know, they don't have access to their parents sending them to, you know, whatever stage door manner, you know, they don't have that extra access, but they have raw talent that if given the additional training would make them competitive and in getting into the industry. And that's across the board. It's not just for actors. And in fact, we've worked really hard on expanding the behind the scenes. We have composers, we have stage managers, we, all this. Um, And so those provide actual scholarships to get the advanced training. And then the final thing is some scholarship support, because we have a higher education crisis in America, if we haven't noticed, in terms of the cost of higher education. And so we provide $10,000 worth of scholarship money, but we also pair them with a mentor from the field for their entire four years. And new this year um, is that the Bloomberg um, uh, philanthropies has helped us connect with a program that they use that advises anybody who applies. It matches them with an advisor to select the right college because so much, you know, it's like this person says, I want to go here and, and our panel will go, oh my God, they're making a mistake because they're going to have a lifetime of debt, like, and they don't know the ins and outs of the system. So, um, anyways, those are the three components. And we've been very thrilled um, to to be running this for six years and impacting people. We're seeing people make their Broadway debut. We're seeing people enter the industry. And it's just really exciting.
1: That's amazing. Um, the other timely thing is, you know, as I sat there watching Tick, Tick, Boom, that our mutual friend, Lynn Miranda, directed um starring Andrew Garfield it just you know brought back every feeling and thought and emotion i've had about Jonathan Larson and you have an amazing program with um with his family and a grant program you want to talk about that a little
2: Absolutely um the Jonathan Larson program of course Jonathan Larson the musical rent took the industry by storm the, what it sounded like what it looked like how contemporary it was how of the moment it was and um you know unfortunately you know he he died of an aortic aneurysm before you know it, the show actually really he knew how successful it was and mm-hmm. you know in in and in the i mean i think his sister i wasn't around them but i think his sister accepted his tony award for him mm-hmm. um so you know the family and a lot of the you know supporters of jonathan set up a fund that we now manage and raise uh funding for and that is because jonathan got told no so much no 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 not yet and this and what the jonathan larson uh uh, you know program is about is saying yes to artists saying yes to promising young um musical theater uh writers sometimes they're teams of writers sometimes they're single writers and to say yes and if you look at the stats of how many tony's have been won how many Oscars have been won? How many, you know, all the awards that the Larson program is a great predictor to the talent. Now this of course was very passionate, uh, a great passion of mine coming from the Meet the Composer days. And so we give them money, but we also give them a, a concert that is, you know, produced uh, to get people to pay attention to the work, but we also have recording money, residencies, other things that that we provide to them. I mean, Michael R. Jackson, um, who's going to be on Broadway very soon, was a Larson you know winner. Shayna Taub, who has the uh, suffragist musical at the public, was a Jonathan Larson winner. And so it's this it goes back to what we were talking about before. We've and this is just a little drop in the in the bucket compared to what we need to do as an industry. because if in terms of supporting these artists, we need to develop the talent. We need to support the writers. If we want stories, that are going to be current relevant stories mm-hmm. instead of only, I mean, now I'm gonna get myself in trouble, but only drawing from existing material, you know, which is mm-hmm. important. There's a place for that. But if we're not embracing new stories and new artists, and what are we doing? And right. so the Larson program does that. You know, people wanna to be told a good story. I hear this doesn't sell and that doesn't sell and whatever. Good stories sell. We've seen it happen. A story. Can transcend stars. It can transcend anything else. If it's a good story and it's reaching people, it sells. So you know, I'm all about supporting these young voices because I think the very art form of theater and its, you know, and its existence depends on the development and the evolution of the art form. So that's what the Larson Program is about.
1: What I also love about that is that it's an unconditional investment in these young artists. And you allow them to have the space to do whatever they need to do. And sometimes that's also making mistakes and failing, right? But you still continue to support them until they get on their feet. And I I think that's just incredible. And it's such a great program.
0: Um, It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: So I have to segue a little bit here into the Tonys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's very exciting because it's the 75th annual Tonys coming up on Sunday, June 12th, and you just announced some changes for this year's show, and which is especially good news for the people living on the West Coast. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Uh, well, sure. I mean, one of the things that happened last year that I feel very proud about, and you'll remember, is that um for years you know the creative arts awards were never televised right Mm -hmm. um years ago there was a PBS pre-show that televised them and people were pining for that so we were struggling with how do we you know get that to exist again and then last year you know in the midst of a pandemic it's like well if you're not gonna why not now we added the Paramount Plus portion um you know which is a you know, I, I love PBS and would do too, but you know, Paramount Plus is a major CBS platform, and so for the first time since PBS, all those artists were recognized on a major platform as a part of the telecast. And I just want to make sure that message gets through. Those artists weren't recognized before, and so the fact that we were able to recognize the entire ecology of makes of what makes a you know Broadway show go up for the first time like that was great. Now, what happened was we didn't air them live and in sequence. So there was a delay on the West Coast. That's what you're talking about. And mm-hmm. so for the first time this year, we're gonna air the entire Tony's live. So that will be seamless for everyone. Um, so that means, go- that means
1: at 5 p.m. everybody on the West Coast can watch the Tony's live as they do with other award shows.
2: Right. So we're very excited about that. And we're very excited to continue you know, to evolve. Um, you know, what is an award show? And, you know, I think the Tony's has always had an advantage in some ways because we have the talent of we can show what happens on stage and nobody else, you know, it's not like watching a movie clip. It's not like, but we have a major disadvantage in that, um, we're the beginning of the story with the, with the national audience. Whereas the Oscars and the Grammys, I would say, are the end of the story because they everybody knows the movies and the albums and so they're whatever. Whereas a lot of, most of the, except for our, you know, really close tight knit fan base, a lot of the national audience is watching the Tonys to see, well, what shows might I see if I come to New York?
1: Or what will be coming on Or a, what will the be touring. coming on the yeah, road. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Um, well, obviously, you know, this is near and dear to my heart, so um, I'm excited for the Tonys and I'm excited that there's a new format and I love the way it just keeps evolving um, and and leveraging in a good way all the new opportunities and all the streaming platforms and, and ways to sort of rethink things and I think that's an exciting change. Um, I know some other award shows are trying to do it and <laughs> a little bit less successfully, I would say.
2: Yeah. And I think there were some nice articles that said that we taught lessons last year. And I think that's, look, anybody like today, I think, look, network television is still a vital thing and streaming is increasing. So to, I think we position ourselves extremely well. We have one foot firmly in both worlds. And that's, that's just called strategic management. And, you know, I I, I'm very pleased with that evolution and you know, like everything else, we need to continue um to evolve and and you know, you never arrive. You never arrive. And if you if you're a leader that thinks you've arrived, then it's time to retire. Exactly. Because
1: <laughs> Exactly. Um well this shows why you use the word strategic as one of your adjectives just to describe yeah, yeah. you. Um well you've certainly, you know, made the Tonies um, you know, for the last whatever decade, I guess, you know, something, you know, you've added so much value and made it more than what it has ever been. Um, and I'm excited because there's, you know, I think, well, I guess we'll, we'll see what happens with COVID and new variants and so forth and have to pivot if needed. But at the moment, I think it's like 16 shows are opening just in the month of April. And it's, yeah, fe- it's starting, to feel, starting to feel like, you know, I guess normal or a new normal, right?
2: Yeah, it's definitely starting to feel normal. And I think, look, the one thing that we know from what we've lived through collectively is, you know, I think before we had the illusion that we had control because there were, you know, we, you know, you never know when you get it. And this is a little dark, but when, you know, when you get in a car, what's going to happen, you never know what the outcome is, but we, this was really in our face. We didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, that was very hard and there was a lot of devastation, but I hope Um, we come out of it stronger. And, you know, and I think, um, you know, as an industry, you know, certainly I think at the dual crisis of COVID and the racial reckoning, you know, if if you're not different because of that, and we're not doing business differently because of that, then we haven't learned. It was such a, it was, you know, it kind of was an opportunity. It was a gift and very ugly, terrible wrapping paper, not really a gift, but it was, mm-hmm. you know, there are parts, there are parts of it that you have to like, look, we had to put everything online at the wing and there, we're going to go back and are going back to in-person things, but we're never not going to stream things because right. we reach people all across the world that we're dying to be reached. So how do we take those learnings for it forward and make for a more vibrant, you know, um, industry. And of course we, you know, where we started, you know, this, You know, the the sort of creative folks that are not on salary really suffered. And, you know, one of the things we can't do is forget that. And we need to start advocating for a relief and recovery package, because I think 23 is going to be harder in some ways, you know, that puts a safety net under these folks, you know,
1: Um, I do absolutely. Speaking of your other programs and sort of adapting to this new sort of hybrid world, um, you have other programs like Counting Together and Working in the Theater. So Working in the Theater, you wanna talk about those a little bit and, and those are streaming now, right? Um,
2: yeah, we're, Working in the Theater is a, a docu-series. Um, it uh, used to be you know, on uh, CUNY TV and it was a sort of a round table, but we turned it into a documentary series. It's Emmy nominated, I think four times now. Um, and it really just goes behind the scenes. And Ian Weiss on our team was so ahead of the curve because he said, I want to document the pandemic now as it's happening. A lot of people are going to do documentaries once it's over, but I want to document it now. It's going to be messy. We're going to have to use zoom. We're going to have to do things, but I want to document it now. And he did amazing, amazing work the last uh, couple of years documenting, you know, that Really, just documenting, you know, what our industry went through, but I think also documenting how amazing our industry is, you know, mm-hmm. why we need creativity in the world. It, there's one where we decided to document how education was adapting. Um, we focused on our, our friends at Carnegie Mellon for mm-hmm. one episode. Watch that episode. It's mm-hmm. extraordinary. What a challenge, you know, to like, how do you train? How do you do train? I mean, you can take philosophy online, but you're gonna take, you know, dance online. You're gonna take, you know, so it, it, and it, um, it makes you feel really good about the industry and um, how we responded. So that's working in the theater. Um, and then we developed a new program during uh, uh, COVID, which was our springboard program, which was an in-person training program. Obviously, couldn't happen. Um, so we decided to develop some master classes. Um, so Cynthia Rivo did one, and Natasha Katz did one on lighting, and those are going to continue, and they're continuing in hybrid. The latest one that was done was by Alex Brightman, and he was doing scene work, and he was in person with the students that he chose to work with, working on the scene work, and then we live streamed it, um, and so that's what that people can expect going forward. I want to make sure that uh, the the young world, you know, has access to these stars and their insight. And obviously, we we audition and accept people to be part of the masterclass, and that whoever we're working with helps pick them. And so those students get extra special, you know, attention and opportunity. But, you know, those folks that watch and they can ask questions, they can learn a lot through that. So that's really um, our masterclass series. Then our our network for emerging leaders is really about putting people you know like you and me and other people in our industry in touch with young people and talking about just like what we talked about what was your path how do i do this you know i talked to so many young people and they're like programming to tell me the three things i need to do Mm -hmm. in order it's like well you know it doesn't work that way um you know and really focusing on the kinds of jobs that you can do in the theater which are vast. Um, And as we know, because arts education getting ripped out of the schools, Mm -hmm. they don't, they know about actor. That's it, you know?
1: Well, the professional development that the wing has done is incredible. And, you know, I do think that there's now such a strong pipeline or hopefully the pipeline is developing for not just diversity, but also more people understanding more of the careers that are within the world of theater, which you guys have really helped support um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your, um, your classes at, um, at, at Baruch College, um, and cultural policy. Um, so what's involved in your, in, in that curriculum? Cause I actually don't even know. I'd love to know.
2: Well, that's a good question because when David Milch asked me if I would come teach cultural policy, I was talking to a bunch of friends to say, what, how do you teach this? Right. And they're like, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, it's really about how government and arts intersect. Right. So, you know, in, in, in the United States, for example, you know, our major cultural policy is the tax deduction, um, because we're very hands off and we figure we're going to spur philanthropy by the tax deduction. And that's going to be our policy in helping arts and culture thrive in other countries, there's subsidy. Um, in some countries, there's subsidy that comes with a lot of control of a cultural minister. So we mm-hmm. look at all these models and we look at where we've come, what have been the impacts. So we talk about what is cultural policy? What is American cultural policy? Um, and then we look at what have been the unintentional and intentional outcomes. So um, diversity and uh, inclusion and equity is an issue because of the philanthropy, because of the tax section, because of where philanthropy is. And that's why there's the imbalance, it was baked in the cake, right? right. The impact on individual artists. Whereas in some countries, like I have a student that's a dancer from the Netherlands and the Netherlands, he couldn't dance anymore as happens. So the Netherlands is paying for him to go to Baruch to retrain, Mm. (laughs) you know? Um, So we don't have that kind of, you know, um, that safety net. and so it's like comparing and contrasting. Now, so we we do again. What is cultural policy? What is American cultural policy? What does it look like in other countries? One of their assignments is to compare and contrast um, a couple of different countries,
1: Russia versus always, the U.S., for example.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's always very interesting. And you know, when the semester starts, the students are like, "Damn it, America's so behind." And at the end, they're like, "We don't have it so bad." <laughs> um, you know, we need more equity. We need we need to figure out the individual artists. Um, and then, you know, their final assignment is really to identify, you know, two to three cultural policy opportunities and talk about how to implement them. We talk about the bureaucracy. We talk, so it's a really, it was a really wonderful challenge for me. And I thank David Milch. I was cursing him at first when I was developing the syllabus. <laughs> it was just like, I mean, for those of you who have, who have not, uh, had to develop a syllabus. It's a very character building, you know, activity. Um, and then I really got into how to talk about this. And it really is about activism, honestly. And I have all these students and imagine during COVID we're meeting versus via zoom, Mm. many of them have been furloughed. Many of them, you know, have been laid off and they're talking about like, I want to dedicate, you know, my life to this and how do you make change? Um, and you don't make change just by making noise. You have to be smart. Where where are the opportunities? Is there an opportunity, uh, for example, like the gig economy? You know, artists fit into the gig economy. So we, don't, for us to separate mm-hmm. ourselves from the rest of the gig economy is silly. We need to join with the gig economy to advocate for change. Health insurance, how many people need health insurance? We need to, we don't need our separate campaign. So how do you, how do you identify existing things? And then what things, you know, do we need to do, um, to make the arts, um, you know, more viable and part of the, you know, every day. There's some amazing statistics that we look at in, in, in class um, that Americans for the arts has, which is like how many, it's like something like 90 crazy percent of parents want their kids to have an arts education and you're like, "Really?" You know, and and that kind of stuff. So it's a really kind of um I it, it's it's kind of saved my life. They've saved my life in a way because um sometimes in this industry you get so, you know, especially if you've been down, you get so you have moments of real exasperation mm-hmm. of you know, our, why is it so hard to move forward? You know, why are we so set in our ways? And then You've got this fresh group of people in front of you who are like why do we do it this way and they're smart and they're scrappy i mean you know one of my students had four jobs and was taking four classes i mean and and he just showed up every week and he had some amazing ideas and you know I just you know to me you know as you get older like that's one of the most important things I, I've gone through this whole thing what do I have time to do and what I don't have time to do and I've cut some things out but that class I'll I'll, I'll never give up um, and it's a it's a it's a very diverse group of students um, both ethnically but also um, age-wise I mean there are a lot of young people but I have a lot of let's say not young people who are changing careers I had you know a dancer choreographer in her 60s that was like i just i want to learn more about this because i think maybe i have a second act and something else to give so it's a real um you know baruch is i'm a big believer in in the public education and you know worry about the amount of debt kids are taking on to get a degree now part of the reason their tuition is cheap is because you pay adjuncts and we don't we don't get that much but you know (laughs) but but the idea that somebody can get their master's, you know, and not end up, you know, in debt for the rest of their, you know, um, life is is a wonderful thing about Baruch. But, anyways, that's those are the issues we talk about.
1: Well, don't be surprised if you see me in your class next semester. Um, <laughs> I, no, it's fascinating. You know, you're talking about the changes, and you're talking about the the younger people and and the new ideas they have. But what changes would you like to see, and what changes are the wing you know, working on right now um, with regard to theater in general?
2: I think equity is a big one, you know, and it's, it's been a long time coming. And I think we saw a lot of panic diversity um, and uh, what a a good friend of mine will call deck the halls diversity, which is like, like, I'm just going to do this. And instead of the thoughtful, painful work involved in systemic um, change Mm -hmm. and, so you know as we come back you know and everybody's like patting themselves on the back you know they're also forgetting i've been part of meetings where it's like okay that was last year now we're back to right you know where we are before and it's heartbreaking and it's like no and it's it's also you know it's a i talk to a lot of people that see it as a zero-sum game and it's not a zero-sum game you know it, it just isn't and i don't know what needs to happen and i so i'll be happier um that when i when what's said behind the scenes that it matches the rhetoric that said you know um you know in front of the scenes and that it's not it's not a competition it's about making space and it's about strengthening theater and letting it evolve it's about like telling different stories it's a you know there's a lot of other things it's about that involves safety and you know things like that but you know this is essential to the art form it's essential to the art form that we evolve um so that's a real big one and i think you know i think people want to know are we done yet or no the no. answer is no no and it's a principle it's not a program and that's the thing that we keep saying louis castro who's been working at us with us at the wing for, gosh, six, seven years now, we've you know, it's a principle. We need to look at it in every way. And, um, you know, we so I think that's really it's really important. It's really important. I'm thrilled that James Earl Jones Theatre is there's going to be a new theater named after James Earl Jones. I'm thrilled that we gave him the lifetime achievement, Tony, a number of years ago, because, yes, James won a lot of awards, but by giving them the lifetime achievement award, it says to all the kids of color across the country, you can have a lifetime in the American theater. And that's the kind of stuff, you know, that is really important. So that's, you know, number one. And then, you know, not unrelated to that is the support of the entire ecology. How do we get the entire ecology supported, you know? um how do we you know how do we put a safety net under them how do we advocate for relief packages that include everyone um that how do we uh, uh, underscore that we're going to rise or fall together we can't put something up without a producer or a theater owner but there you know there's this, the theater is going to be empty <laughs> mm-hmm. without all these other people you know so i you know it's healing Healing may be the wrong word, but bringing us together, because one of the problems that we'll go back to cultural policy class for a minute, with our advocacy work and why we haven't gotten over is that we adv- we we can't we will not unite for some reason on the power of arts and culture. We have a powerful story to tell. This is not a handout. You know there will be no economic recovery without arts and culture, but the entire ecology. Don't just tell the. You know, the venue is part of it because then you're telling only half your story Mm -hmm. and you're, you know, the impact. So I think, you know, I did a lot of advocacy work around recovery. I'm still doing it because we need it continuously. And, you know, we always say, this is, we're not asking for a handout. We're asking you to put oil in the engine, you know. So I think this idea that we are one ecology, we are not pitted against each other, we're not adversaries, you know, we are an interdependent culture and that. By uniting and advocating for each other, we have a better story to tell.
1: Right. Last word, can you give some advice on being a change make change maker in today's world?
2: First thing is you got to know your facts. Know your facts. Be on top of things. Be advocating from a place of knowledge. You know, um, you can't just beat the table. You got to know. You got to have the stats. You got to be advocating from a place of knowledge. Um, and, and secondly is, you know, to be willing, it's not easy to be a change maker Mm -hmm. because you're often the only person in the room that says something you're the disruptor because in order to change the systems, we have to disrupt the systems. And that doesn't make you a popular person. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to say, you know, actually we can't do this because there isn't one person of color, you know, and, and being that, and then people look at you like, you know, and, and so you have to be comfortable having what my mentor, Fran Richard, who was the head of concert music at ASCAP for many years said, having the courage of your convictions. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is not, uh, for the faint of heart. It's not.
1: Well, Heather, you certainly have the courage of your convictions, and you've always been someone that I've respected enormously. I'm so happy you've been part of this podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Broadway Gives Back podcast. Broadway Gives Back is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Special thanks to my producing partner, writer, editor, and friend, Jim Lochner. And thank you to everyone at BPN, including Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, and Kimberly Garris. I'd also like to thank Julian Hills from The Bulldog Agency and Eric Becker from Broderick Street Music. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also follow Broadway Gives Back on Facebook and Instagram at Broadway Gives Back Podcast and on Twitter at Broadway Gives. To learn more, visit vpnfm slash Broadway Thanks so much.